Go ahead and take your Bible, and you can open up to Genesis chapter 36. And if you don't have a Bible, our ushers are at the front here. They're going to walk towards the back. You can just slip your hand up in the air, and we want to make sure that you get a copy of the Bible today. And if you don't own a copy, then um, Merry Christmas. This is our gift to you. Uh, We would give it to you even if it wasn't Christmas, so there's that. But we would love for you to have a copy of God's Word and trust that it's going to be a blessing to you. During this Advent season, we haven't taken a break from our study in the book of Genesis, and I think that's actually uh, a good thing, especially when it comes to the text today, Genesis chapter 36. I think it's very fitting that we're looking at this passage, this specific passage, during the Advent season, which has historically or traditionally been understood to be a, a period of preparation for celebrating the first coming of Jesus and then preparation for the second coming of Jesus. Advent is traditionally and historically understood to be a season of waiting. Expectant, hopeful, joyful, faith-filled waiting for all that God has promised to his people. And chapter 36 maybe seems a bit strange when it comes to thinking about the Advent season, I mean, after all, if you've had a chance to look at it, um, it's simply just a list of names. And we're not gonna read the whole chapter today because I do not feel like standing up here and butchering 73 names. But what we are gonna cherry pick some features of this text that I think are incredibly important. And again, at first glance, it kind of seems almost pointless, you might say, to to get a list here of names of the wives of Esau, of the children of Esau, of chiefs that come from Esau, and kings that come from the line of Esau. Maybe it simply feels like uh, historical details that are helpful maybe to know in some kind of context, but what significance do they have for the church today, for the people of God today? Well, there are some features of this text, some indications that it is more than simply a historical list, a genealogy, some helpful information. There are indications in this text itself that we are supposed to see both a comparison and a contrast between two kinds of people and between two kinds of kingdoms. We're supposed to see here, as we come to the end of the Jacob and Esau cycle in the book of Genesis, a final comparison between these two men, Jacob and Esau, these two brothers, twins, who were given by God very different destinies, very different callings, and who in the final analysis are very different kinds of people. And this kind of capstone to the Jacob and Esau cycle actually helps to set the stage for what's coming for the last portion of the book of Genesis. From chapter 37 onwards, we're going to kind of take a a dive into the family life of Jacob and look at one specific child of Jacob, and that is Joseph. And so we're going to look at a significant portion of the, the kind of unfolding plan of redemption through the family line of Jacob, but here what we see is kind of a condensed or summarized picture of Esau and his family line. 
And it's interesting, if you were to read through the entire chapter and to butcher the names in your own mind, then then what you would actually see, it feels like there's this rapid kind of increase or progression of Esau's progeny, of his prosperity, and of his power. He seems to be becoming something significant. A significant individual who then becomes a significant nation, so much so that kings are flowing from his family line. And that's fascinating because when you compare that to Jacob, what you see is that it appears that God seems to be taking his time on delivering the promises to Jacob and his family. And it's going to be a lot longer, by the way, for Jacob and for his family. I mean, the story of Joseph is just the beginning of what will be hundreds of years before they ever really begin to see the fruition of the promises that have been given to Jacob and to the nation of Israel. Jacob has placed his faith in God, but what we are seeing here is that he needs a faith that waits for all the promises of God. And and so do we, as the people of God today. We need a kind of faith that waits for all that God has promised. Because as we look around, it can sometimes feel like, you know, Jacob looking around at Esau, maybe, and thinking to himself, why is it that, that Jacob and those who are not of God seem to be excelling in every area of life? Why is it that the wicked seem to prosper? I mean, I mean there's a whole psalm about this. Psalm 73, listen to how it begins. The psalmist says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. It's like he has to convince himself of this right out the gates, because look at what he says next. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Why? For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. We can look around and we can feel as if the promises of God are slow to come to pass, as if maybe the ways of the world are paying off, but this text reminds us that faith in God is a faith that waits upon God. So the question then is this, how do we, as the people of God, wait well? I think that's what this text is trying to instruct both the people of God in the time of Moses and the people of God today. I want to show you three ways that we can wait well. The first is this, that we need to faithfully live as citizens of another kingdom. That's, that's the first calling of the people of God. And we, we get a sense of this contrast right out the gates. If you're familiar, again, if you've been with us in Genesis, I hope you see these contrasts. But we begin a new section here in chapter 36, verse 1, and right away, something sticks out to us. Notice this. These are the generations of Esau. That is Edom. And then notice verse 2. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites. Again, if you've been with us in Genesis, you know that this was a disastrous move on the part of Esau. This was a direct violation of what the people of God were supposed to be doing. And this, again, had nothing to do with ethnicity. It had nothing to do with anything but a spiritual reality. And in contrast to 
Esau, we know this, that Jacob, he's just coming back into the land of Canaan. Why? Because he had been gone for 20 years. One of the chief purposes that he was gone was that he was finding a wife from Terah's family line. And so here, again, we're being reminded that Esau represents a man who is living as a citizen of this world. He is a man of the, of the ground, of the dirt, of this world. And the Bible, we need to remember this. When, when you approach, especially the Old Testament, I think some of us have been accustomed to a, approaching it as if there are like unique, individual, isolated stories with good moral principles. And we forget that, for example, the book of Genesis is one book. But let me take it a step further than that. The Bible is one book. And the Bible is woven together in unbelievable ways that tell us that, yes, while there are many human authors, at the end of the day, there is one divine author over this entire book. And what we find out, if we go all the way back to the beginning of Genesis, what we see is that the Bible actually begins with the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the starting point for humanity. Humanity is created into the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, maybe you're saying, well, how do we understand the kingdom of God? Let me give you the most simplistic way of defining the kingdom of God that I can think of, okay? Here it is. God's people in God's place with God's presence under God's power. And by under God's power, I mean that in the sense of of surrendered and submitted to God's divine rule, okay? God's people in God's place with God's presence under God's power. That was where humanity first existed and how they operated. Adam and Eve functioned as kings and queens, as vice regents on behalf of the king of the universe, Yahweh God. And at the fall, we see not only that sin is introduced and causes a fracture between the relationship between humanity and God and disrupting the kingdom of God, forcing mankind outside of the kingdom of God in a sense, what we actually see as well is that there is a spiritual dynamic taking place, and one of the things we should understand at the beginning is this, that Satan himself usurps the role of Adam when he deceives him. He steals, this is part of what Satan is doing, he's not just trying to, to play some trick on Adam for the sake of having a little bit of fun and messing a little bit with humanity and trying to you know, kind of poke at God. He's actually listen, got a plan where he is stealing for himself a kingly kind of role over the earth. Which is why, by the way, when you read through especially the Gospel of John, John chapter 12, John chapter 16, John chapter 14, Satan is referred to as the ruler of this world. He's given terms throughout the Bible, spiritually speaking, he's the prince of the power of the air. He has stolen this kind of authority. It is temporary, and it will be won back. We know that living this side of the cross, amen? But for a time, Satan himself is a kind of ruler over this world and the world system. And right away in Genesis 3.15, we are being told that there is now this great cosmic war between the domain of darkness and the kingdom of God. That there's a cosmic war between the king of the universe, God, and the usurper king, Satan. 
And Genesis 3.15 gives us a promise that actually, if we can understand it, even from a New Testament lens, we, we know this, right? In cursing the serpent, he says that there will be a seed of the woman who will crush your head, though you will bruise his heel. And what we are supposed to see in that, listen, is there is a war going on, and there are two kings who are going to go head to head, and one king is going to come out victorious in the end. From the very beginning we see there are two seeds. There's the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. There are two kings. There are two cities and there are two kingdoms. Every person is in one or the other. St. Augustine, who wrote after the fall of the Roman Empire, he wrote his magnum opus called The City of God. And in that monstrous volume, he, he discusses the reality of the kingdom or the city of man and the city of God and how they, they kind of are at odds with one another and they overlap with one another. And here's what he says about these two cities or these two societies or these two kingdoms or those two, these two peoples. He says they are marked by the standards by which they live. The earthly city lives by the standard of the flesh, whereas the city of God lives by the spirit. And then he goes on and says, what ultimately distinguishes the two are their loves. We see then that the two cities were created by two kinds of love. The earthly city was created by self-love, reaching the point of contempt for God. The heavenly city, by the love of God, carried as far as contempt for self. What we see here in Genesis 36 is that these two brothers are of two very different kingdoms. And that's why you can drop down to verse 6. And it begins to, to talk about how Esau took his wives and his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. And notice this. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob. For their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. Listen to this eerie statement. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Seir. Uh, Esau is Edom. There is this picture of Jacob coming back into the promised land and Esau leaving the promised land. And yes, this speaks to the fact that God is going to be faithful to give to Jacob what he had promised. But it is also an indictment on the decision of Esau here. He takes his substantial family and he leaves the land of promise. He leaves the land of Canaan. He leaves the land of blessing and he goes away from his brother Jacob, the one through whom all of the blessings flow, the, the one that he should be seeking to attach himself to because he realizes the hand of Yahweh is upon my brother. Salvation will come through the line of my brother. And what's really interesting is that in going away from his brother, the text, it, it describes it in a way that is familiar to us, describing that the fact that the land was not enough for both of them to dwell in. Does that sound a little bit familiar? 
It should jog your memory. And Moses is trying to pull you back into Genesis 13 when Abraham and Lot were looking out and seeing the land of Canaan in front of them. And then it tells us that this exact same scenario played out in their lives. And Lot chose to go in the direction of Sodom and Gomorrah while Abraham waited and was led by God to the promised land. And again, as we draw the comparisons out, which I think is the point of Moses in writing it like this, Esau has chosen to separate himself from the promise of God. He's fooled by what his eyes can see instead of having eyes of faith like Abraham, and in this instance like Jacob, who are trusting in what they cannot fully see right now in this moment. And so he leaves the land of promise in search of greater prosperity. It seems like there's kind of an amicable split, but I think we're supposed to read between the lines. And what we know in the history uh, between Israel and Edom is that there's going to be ongoing tension between these two nations. Just as Lot found himself immersed in the city of man, so too we are see that Esau is choosing to immerse himself in the city of man. And just like Sodom and Gomorrah were in sin and loving sensuality, so too the kingdom of man will come to a devastating end and be destroyed by the judgment of God. So Esau moves out of the promised land and he settles in Seir, which is Edom. This is going to become the, the region where he and his people will dwell. And we know that this came about with a profound kind of assimilation into the culture. There was no separation like the people of God from the nations around them. There was full-blown assimilation. And at the same time, what makes this incredibly challenging is that this text presents Esau as prospering far beyond the people of God. So Israel... They're suffering for years and years. And remember that the generation that first received this would have been the wilderness generation. They would have been very familiar with their history. So they would have known that Edom had become something great. Meanwhile, they had had hundreds of years of both famine and migration and captivity and slavery. And here is Edom basking in unhindered success and prosperity. And therein lies the temptation, always for the people of God, the lie that because the wicked prosper, perhaps God is not faithful, or perhaps God is not worth it after all. While God's people may live in the one kingdom of this world, they are primarily called to live as citizens of another kingdom. And quite honestly, this can be so challenging. It's difficult to parse this sometimes and to figure out the right way to operate in this world as citizens of the kingdom of God. But one thing is very, very obvious from this text. We must not live like Esau. Esau was the one who lived for the pleasures of this world. He was willing to sell his birthright and the blessings of God for a bowl of lentil stew. 
And the parallels in our culture are striking. Right? How many times are we tempted to sell the blessings of God, the truth of God, the promises of God for, for some measly worldly pleasure, some kind of self-indulgence that lasts for a moment. It's fleeting. It's temporary. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a little tiny high that goes away, and we got to keep seeking it over and over and over again. And what we find out is that the more we seek it, the emptier, emptier we become, and, and until we hit rock bottom and we look up and we realize that it was never worth it. We need to learn to live the way Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians, that the things in this world, they're, they're, the things that are seen, excuse me, are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And in our challenge, just like every generation of Christians and people of God who've always walked the face of this earth, the challenge is to seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. To set our mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. And maybe I can encourage you a little further. If, if you do not value spiritual things and give them first place in your life, listen, here's what's going to happen. Then the merely physical will flood in and dominate who you are and what you do. If spiritual realities don't take priority in your life, physical, fleshly realities will. And that's not to say that, that physical reality is bad. We're not, we're not kind of new neo-Christian Gnostics who believe that there's something evil or sinful about the flesh or about the world. We, we don't go there. We believe that God loves physical reality. We believe that God loves the embodied reality. We believe that one day God is going to create a new heavens and a new earth that is going to be physical and more real than anything we could possibly imagine. Amen? But we cannot, we cannot immerse ourselves in this world in a way that steals our affections away from God. And causes us to live for things that are temporary, unsustainable, and unsatisfying. We must choose instead to make spiritual concerns our priority. I think it's appropriate to, to ask this question, which kingdom do you feel like you're living for today? If you looked at your life and, and if you looked at the indulgences maybe of your life, the pleasures that you're seeking, the things that you're satisfied in, let me ask you, are you more inclined to answer those with this physical world rather than spiritual realities? Or on the flip side of that, are you finding that because you're cultivating your spiritual life, the dynamics of a, a healthy spiritual formation, that you're now seeing more and more that Jesus really is more satisfying. Spiritual things really are better. The, the word of God is, is sweet to the taste. Is that increasingly true in your life? who or what is king in your life, I think we need to understand that you cannot live as a citizen of God's kingdom unless and until you first surrender to the king of the kingdom. Secondly, we wait well by strategically advancing the kingdom of God. And in this middle section here from verse 9 through 30, again, we won't read the whole thing, but let me describe to you 
of what we see here. We see a continual expansion of Esau's family and of Esau's kingdom. Removing, I want you to kind of track the logic here, removing from a person to a family to a nation and a kingdom. That's the progression. And one of the things we learn again through this text is that it is possible to prosper in this world apart from God. It's very possible. It's possible for you to be wildly successful in this world apart from God. But that does not indicate the truest sense of the blessing of God. So here, we see in this first section, this enlarged genealogy, verses 9 through 14, begins to move, again, from a family to a a more of a tribal arrangement. That's the way they operated in the ancient world. There were these kind of tribal clans, and each of these clans would have had chiefs of the clans. So verse 15 through 19 begins to move us in that progression. And then in the next section, the kind of final section, verses 20 through 30, Esau, one of the things we see, has displaced or destroyed the native people, and he's married into the leading families of the day, establishing some kind of treaties. You notice verse 20, that these are the sons of, the, of Seir, the Horite, the inhabitants of the land. So again, the picture is one of conquest, The picture is one of of taking over. Esau is growing in power. He's advancing. He's progressing. One commentator says it like this. The picture here is one of violent invasion by Esau's clan, followed by the absorption of the native populace into the descendants of Esau. The world's kingdom, like we see with Esau, advances through power and military might. It comes mainly and throughout history in the form of physical conquest. And we see, we see this kind of, of military advancement even right now in our day, don't we? we? We can just turn on the news and we can watch the fighting in Ukraine and, and between Russia and Ukraine. We can watch the fighting between Israel and Palestine. We can watch the battles over uh, land and ideologies and we can see the methods of warfare being employed. We can see how vicious people are We can see how ruthless they are. We can see how devastating war is now and has always been in the hands of men. And so here we have have Esau. And Edom, the nation that comes out of Esau, is becoming a great and powerful nation. And in contrast, we are supposed to see Israel in light of this. Who and where is Israel? Where is Jacob and his family? I mean, they are this small family. Yes, he's got 12 sons now, finally. But they're nothing and nobody, especially compared to Esau and Edom. They're simply uh, 12 sons, but no nation. They're just a family holding on to a promise. And it serves as a reminder for us that God's kingdom does not advance through force, but through faith. Yes, The people of God will be called by God to go on a physical conquest in the land of Canaan led by Joshua. But in the New Testament, that picture 
of conquest is taken and it is transformed into a spiritual conquest led by the greater Joshua, Jesus Christ. Before Jesus was put to death, he stood trial before Pilate. And Pilate, a, a pagan, trying to navigate all the complexities of the situation, he, he pulls Jesus aside and he begins to interrogate him. He wants to question him about the reality or the claims about, about his kingship. And in John 18, 36 through 37, Jesus answers Pilate, and here's what he says. He says to him, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am. For this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And there, I just hear, hear what Jesus is doing. He is contrasting the way the worldly kingdoms advance. And he is, he is discrediting it from a spiritual angle. He's saying, listen, I am a king. Jesus, he's, he's, he's playing a bit of a game here. And he's letting Pilate say the truth. And Jesus is not denying it. In fact, he's affirming it. I am a king, but understand this. My kingdom is not of this world, so it will not advance in world ways. It will not be brought about by force. What is it brought about by then, Jesus? It's brought about by truth, spiritual truth. Jesus is, is indicating the nature by which his kingdom will advance. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. This is a statement of faith. The kingdom is advancing through faith in who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do. God's kingdom is not always visible to the world. It does not always have power or influence in the world, but it is nonetheless present within the world and growing. In fact, this reality is at the very heart of many of the, the parables that Jesus tells about the kingdom of God. And all you have to do is read through Luke 13 to get a bit of a sampling of this. Jesus says, for example, what is the kingdom of God like and to what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden and it grew and became a tree and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. And he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For I tell you, Many will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. 
Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then notice, notice the, the, the pulling back into the Old Testament here. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from the north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. I want you to hear what Jesus is saying. The kingdom of God is operative in the world, but often in an invisible kind of way. And at times it appears that the kingdom of God isn't present at all, but meanwhile it's been growing and flourishing and advancing, and it's a spiritual kingdom in nature that has a full and final physical fulfillment later. It's what Jesus has pointed to even in this passage. We're going to get there in just a moment. And what does this mean for us? How does the kingdom advance, and what is our strategy? I mean, the world's strategy is clear. Force, conquest, take over. Well, we know this, that our king gave us a global mission in Matthew chapter 28 to go into all the world and make disciples. Disciples of of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to observe everything that he had commanded And what we know is this, that spiritually speaking, the mission of the church is multiplication. Multiplication of disciples is the mission of the church. We're sent out to conquer, listen, not cities, but souls. Not places, but people. All in the name of Jesus Christ, by the power of his word and his spirit, one soul at a time brought into the narrow door through the, into the kingdom of God by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. And by the way, that makes the church all the more important for the mission. I hope you sense the, the, the significance of the, the church The church is referred to a lot of ways in Scripture. It's referred to as a a family, as a household, as a temple. There's all kinds of analogies or metaphors that are used for the church. But one of the things we see from Paul, Paul says that he is an ambassador. And an ambassador implies a, a king, which makes the church an embassy of the kingdom. Here, listen, this, this is holy ground here. I mean, metaphorically speaking, right? This is kingdom territory. Where the people of God are, where the spirit of God is, where King Jesus rules and reigns with his people and in his people, here is the kingdom of God in our midst. Amen? And and how do we know that we are an embassy of the kingdom? Because here in in, in the, the church of Jesus Christ, the embassy of the kingdom, this is where King Jesus speaks to his people and God's people respond and obey. We hear his word. We submit to it, we surrender to it. We allow, we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. We ask our king to come and to change us and transform us and to do in our hearts and our lives only what he can do to make us a people who are growing and godly and mature and ready then to be sent out into this world to be light in the darkness. 
And, and we're sent out, church, into a battlefield. So you can see, listen, this embassy of the kingdom, it's kind of like a refuge. It's supposed to be like a refuge in the middle of the kingdom of man. This is where we come to encourage one another all the more until the day draws near. This is where we come to exhort one another, to serve one another, to help one another, to restore one another. This is where kingdom work takes place. It uniquely equips us to go back out onto the battlefield. Have you ever noticed the central command in Ephesians chapter 6? Where Paul tells us, right, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, right? We know we are wrestling against spiritual realities. And in that section in Ephesians chapter 6, we have given to us the armor of God that we strap on for the spiritual war that we are sent out into. And the, the key exhortation there is to stand. Three times Paul uses this language to stand firm. The exhortation is not to cast out demons or bind territorial spirits. The command repeated more than once is stand firm in the strength of his might. And the idea for the church is this, don't give up, don't give in, don't back down, endure, push forward. The fact is the church is not a social club or a cruise ship to heaven. It's a military unit and one under constant assault from the enemy. Keep fighting the good fight of faith. How? How do we do that? Don't give in to the lies, okay? The, the enemy wants to deceive us through error, falsehood, and we, we break down those strongholds with the truth. We rescue people from blindness by, by what? But by, by the light of the truth of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, okay? We hold forth the light of the world that can penetrate the darkness, We believe the gospel, we live the gospel, and we proclaim the gospel. The gospel of God is the only hope for us and for the world. That's all we have to offer. Our goal is not to withdraw from the world. You hear me say this often, okay? I need to say it again. We are not called to withdraw from the world. Our Savior promises that we will be protected in the world. We have a job to do in the world. We cannot forsake our calling. We cannot abandon the mission. That would be treasonous. That would be rebellion against our king. We must be salt and light in the world. And like I said, this can be difficult to figure out, but let me give you two ways to think of this, just two ways. First, gospel impact on souls. I've just been preaching that, so I'm not gonna say much more, okay? We have to believe that the gospel is what changes and transforms people. We have to believe it. And we have to keep offering it. We have to keep proclaiming it. We're ambassadors with one message. There's a king. His name is Jesus. He's come from heaven to earth. That's what this season's all about. He's come from heaven to earth because he loves you and he wants to save you from your sins. It's the only way out. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through him. The second way we think about our mission in the world is gospel influence on society. Okay, so gospel impact on souls, gospel influence on society. Now listen, I want to be very clear. One is the mission, the other is a byproduct of and a potential aid to the mission, okay? The mission isn't transform society. 
That's a byproduct of the gospel, but in influencing society, we can help open doors for the gospel, okay? So what that means is that God has placed you in careers, in positions of influence. He's placed you in communities. And, and you are able by the grace of God to, in, out of love for God and love for neighbor, to influence those around you for their good and for ultimately for the glory of God. You can work through systems. You can work in the spheres of influence God has given you. And you can open doors for the gospel. And my encouragement would be to stay focused on the mission of impacting souls while also trying to do good to everyone and for everyone around you. All right, lastly, how do we wait well? We patiently anticipate the king of kings and the fullness of his kingdom. The final section here looks from verse 31 all the way down to the end of the chapter and and maybe even a bit further. But notice the first verse, verse 31. There are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom. Notice the contrast here. Again, we're supposed to see these contrasts. Before any king reigned over the Israelites. So you see again what, what Moses is doing. He's acknowledging that, yes, things seem to be progressing quickly for Esau and for Edom. And here's Israel. They seem to be lagging behind. It seems like God is slow to fulfill his promises. And then he gives a list right here, not a genealogy, but a list of eight kings who reigned in Edom. And again, uh, the contrast there is supposed to be seen. This is prior to the monarchy in Israel. So Edom becomes this wealthy, powerful nation and kingdom with kings long before Israel even has one king. And and remember, we're supposed to see this in, in light of chapter 35, which has just come before this. Remember when Jacob entered back into the land and God reiterated his blessings to Jacob, do you remember the one thing he said that was almost kind of unique? It, it kind of gets a nod back to what he said to Abraham, but here's what he said to Jacob, and kings will come from you. And so you read this and you're like, wait a second here. Where are the kings coming from Jacob? Why do the nations all have kings, but, but there's no king yet for Israel? What about Jacob? And what God is saying is that they, they, the people of God, must wait patiently for the promised kings and ultimately for the promised king and the fullness of his kingdom. You know, the history of, of Jacob and Esau, like I mentioned earlier, is going to continue to be one that's filled with tragic tension and turmoil. Time doesn't permit us to go through all the events, but Esau's descendants would become habitual enemies of Israel. I mean, even when they're coming out of Exodus, Moses leading the people out of Exodus, the Edomites show no favor towards the the genuine proposals of Moses and the people of God. They shut them down. 
But eventually, Israel would be established in the land of promise. They're, they're going to leave here, and that's the next section of Genesis. We're going to see they're going to be forced out of the land into Egypt for hundreds of years. But we know this. If we trace the history of Israel, God will give them a king. The first king will be from the line of Benjamin, the youngest son of Jacob, and his name will be Saul, and he will not be a good king. He will be a king like the people asked for, a king like all the other nations around them. But Saul will have to fight the Edomites during his reign. Eventually, God would give them a a better king from the line of Judah, the king that we all know, King David. King David kind of prefigures a kind of victory that's going to happen through, through still a more distant king. David will fight against and eventually subdue the Edomites during his rule, but only for a time. And after that, they would have to endure, after the Solomonic reign, they would endure more mistreatment and abuse, and they would patiently continue to wait for a greater king, anticipating the promised king from the line of Jacob. Much of the Old Testament speaks to the Edomites. In fact, uh, you can read about some of the prophecies against Edom in, in Micah, in Amos, in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel. But there's one book in particular, a very short minor prophet, Obadiah, just one chapter. And, and if you were to read that, here's what you would see. It really is just a short prophecy against Edom. And there it, it highlights that one of the chief sins of Edom is their pride. Pride in her power. She thought that she was impregnable. She thought that she could not be conquered. And it's interesting, if you know anything about kind of biblical history, maybe you've, or you've watched Indiana Jones, you know of the city of Petra. <laughs> Some of you know what I'm talking about. The city of Petra, it's a fascinating city. It was buried for almost a thousand years. It was hidden for almost a thousand years before it was finally discovered again. And the city of Petra is a city that's really built into the rocks in the region of Seir. It's really at the very heart of Edom. And many believe it was actually the capital for a while of Edom. It was this stronghold, and it's this remarkable, honestly, it's remarkable, this city. Carved into this stone, it could only be entered through this narrow, winding gorge or canyon called a sick. It was a mile long and incredibly narrow. From a human perspective, it's hard to imagine this city ever being overrun. It's hard to imagine a safer place to find yourself. The kingdom seemed like it would last forever, but if you read through the prophets, it was prophesied that not only would this city be overcome, but it would only be possessed by jackals, wildlife. And obviously when they they found it, there was nobody living there. Nothing but animals, wild animals, who had seemingly taken over this once thought impregnable city. And Obadiah, in verses 3 and 4, listen to what the Word of God says. It says, the pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, 
in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagles, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. This is not just the way that Scripture speaks about Edom, which here is representative of the city of man, the kingdom of man. This is the way the Word of God speaks about every city of man, about every kingdom of man. From Babel, where Genesis 11, the people of God united in a joint effort against God, to Babylon the Great, this once magnificent city with a military that was unmatched in all the earth, to Rome, the eternal city. All of these are depicted throughout Scripture as paradigmatic cities of man, kingdoms of man that seem like they're eternal, that seem like they're impregnable, impenetrable, like seem that they're going to last forever and conquer everyone and everything. But listen, every king and every kingdom of man will eventually rise and then come to a crashing fall. Genesis is making it clear there are only two seeds, two cities, two, two kingdoms. One is earthly and temporary. The other is heavenly and eternal. One appears unstoppable but will perish. The other appears insignificant but will flourish. One is ruled by earthly kings who come and go. The other will be ruled by the king of kings who will reign forever. And it is to this king that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In fact, Amos, the prophet, in Amos 9, he prophesied the very end of Edom, but he was also the first prophet to predict the creation of redeemed Edomites who would submit to the future king of the line of David. In fact, James, in Acts chapter 15, quotes from Amos chapter 9, verses 11 to 12, to show how God was fulfilling his, prophet, his promise to redeem a people from every nation. By God's grace, Edom and the nations would someday bear the Lord's name, Amos 9 says. They would stream into the kingdom of God by surrendering to the king of kings. And there is a final contrast here in verses 43 that I want you to see. And it's contrasted with verse 1 of chapter 37. It's a bad chapter break, and, and your Bibles may even kind of show that there's a little bit of confusion of where we should put verse 1 of chapter 37. But look at verse 43, halfway through. It says this, these are the chiefs of Edom. That is Esau, the father of Edom, according, notice these words, to their dwelling places in the land of their possession. Now catch for chapter 37, verse one. Jacob lived in the land of his father's, notice this word, sojournings, in the land of Canaan. Edom takes possession while God's people remain sojourners. Edom dwells in their land while God's people remain exiles. And if you come to the New Testament, what we see so often is that the people of God today are referred to as exiles, strangers. We are still sojourners waiting for the final fulfillment of all that God has promised. And in this Advent season, we are reminded that the people of God were awaiting people. 
patiently anticipating the King of Kings and the fullness of his coming kingdom. This season, we're reminded that he, he came, right? That's what we're all, we're building towards, you know, next week, next Sunday, and then on Monday, we're building towards this, this great anticipation and this great reminder, this celebration that he promised he would come, and at a point in history, he did, he came. And in a fascinating touch of biblical irony, um, it was an Edomite king, Herod the Great, that attempted to kill the king of kings by slaughtering the babies of Bethlehem. And his successor, another Edomite king, Herod Antipas, was the one who beheaded John the Baptist. But what's amazing is you read through the New Testament, their attempts to prevent the coming king would be futile. And this satanically inspired Edomite king would be no match for Jesus, the descendant of Jacob, the offspring of Abraham, the seed of the woman who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He did not look like a king, and many who patiently anticipated him would miss him. He would be born in humility, and he would die in humiliation on a cross for the sins of the world. But through his death and his resurrection, he would conquer the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this world. He would reclaim what was rightfully his, and then he would begin, as the king of kings, to advance his kingdom by saving a people from every tribe, every language, every people, and every nation. By his grace and power, God is transferring a people from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, Israelite and Edomite, Jew and Gentile. There is only one way to enter the kingdom, and that is through the conquering king. You can come into the kingdom by believing in him and bowing the knee to the king of kings. Enter into his kingdom is the call of the gospel, and then look ahead to its coming fullness. As the worship team comes out, we are gonna sing a final Advent song. It is a song of waiting, and I want to remind you that for thousands of years, God's people waited, faithfully living as citizens of another kingdom, strategically advancing God's kingdom, and patiently anticipating the King of Kings and the fullness of his kingdom. And when the fullness of time had come, the scriptures say God sent forth his son. Church, we will not wait forever. Do you realize that? We will not wait forever. One day soon, the fullness of time will come again, and with it will come the king of kings and the fullness of his kingdom. King Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us is coming again. And so can you hear your heart aligning with the words of the Apostle Paul, knowing what awaits the people of God? Can you not feel the cry of your heart saying, come, Lord Jesus, come. So together, let's stand and let us sing a song, this song of waiting, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Emmanuel.